Welcome to Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. It was another great week in sports. This week, I'll talk about the match between Bryson and Brooks. What do you do when you're sitting in the car by yourself and you have six and a half hours of windshield time? For me, it was sports podcasts. Lots of sports podcasting. Mostly Tom Brady and Jim Gray in Let's Go. I also listened to Bowling with Favre. Eric Bowling and Brett Favre talk about sports and a lot of other things. And quite frankly, I would tell you, that Brett Favre's take on the NFL and Tom Brady's are almost diametrically opposed. And I'll share why. The NFL and NCAA football. Man, what a freaking weekend. But first, I'd like to share my wonderful Thanksgiving experience. I had the pleasure of visiting my 92-year-old mom, who's more caught up on Netflix, BBC TV, and anything to do with the last czars of Russia, because I'm convinced she's a descendant of the Romanov royal family. I mean, it was fun seeing her. We had a great time. I then traversed the state of Florida to join Tracy's family at Aunt Donna's new crib in Stewart, Florida. Props to the Cobb and Wright crew for preparing and serving enough food to nourish a militia. Tracy owns the turkey cooking crown year after year. I mean, how do you even get the white meat to be moist hours after exiting the oven? That's her secret. Good luck. Joy, Pat, and Donna won for supporting chefs and master bakers. And David Wright demonstrated his new appreciation for wine by serving the best pinots and cabs. Bravo, Cobb and Wright clan. Bravo. The holiday trip was capped off with a round of the game taboo with the Wright and Abelese girls. And if you've never played that game, it relies on your ability to describe a keyword or phrase without using that keyword, additionally, without using five designated taboo words that most people would use to describe the keyword. Example, the word pecan pie. That's right, we in the South, so I should say pecan pie can't use pecan, you can't use pie, and you can't use these five taboo words. Dessert, crust, nut, bake, gooey. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, okay, but I would say this or say that. Understand, the game is just not about one card. So anyway, you play on these teams. And here's how it works. A teammate looks at the card, starts spitting out alternative words to describe, like, pecan pie. The other members of your team start guessing, and as soon as one guesses it, you go to the next card. And if you just think you can't get it, you throw the card down, the other team gets the point. Here's the rub. If you say any of the taboo words or any of the keywords, like pie, you forfeit the card, and the other team also gets the point. 
but you have two things working against you. Number one, you've got this one-minute hourglass timer. Number two, you've got a person on the other team watching your taboo card, just waiting for you to say one of those words, and they have a squeaker in their hand, and they just squeak it. And most people, especially after you have a few drinks, start squeaking it right by ear. The objective? Go through as many cards as you can in a minute without saying a taboo word. The team with the highest points wins. Sounds easy, right? Now you add the element of alcohol. You add the element of time running down and somebody on the other team mentioning it. Aggressive competitors with a squeaker in your ear just waiting to squeak it, coupled with a competitive family that just loves winning. It's really fun to listen to creative ways that each player describes things without using taboo words. So in the example I gave earlier, pecan pie, which was one of my words, I couldn't use dessert, nut, crust, bake, or gooey. So I just said, hey, Aunt Donna served it after dinner. Somebody yells, pecan pie. Boom. Bam. Bop. Several months back, I talked about the rivalry between Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau. And I gave some thoughts on whether it really was a rivalry or not. And I could tell you this. Brooks is just not a fan of Bryson. Although, I would, at the end of the match, he stood next to Bryson and watched him hit 400-yard drives. And I think he was pretty impressed with how a person on the PGA Tour, a player, a good player, can actually get that kind of ball flight and speed. So I think he was impressed, but that's all he was impressed with. The match was played at the Wynn Golf Club, formerly the Desert Inn course in Las Vegas. And I used to stay at the Desert Inn. It's no longer there and play at that course when I used to go in for these annual business meetings. And (laughs) the one thing I remember about the golf course is that most of the time, Most of the guys that were playing were out all night, came in, showered up, and then came to the course. Some guys didn't even shower. The hardest thing about playing the Desert Inn in those conditions was bending down and putting your tee in the ground and trying to stand up without falling over. This event this weekend was commentated by Phil Mickelson, who's no stranger to casino life. Phil has this openly pronounced appreciation for what Bryson DeChambeau can do and how he thinks. He likes the way he calculates his shots, probably because Phil does something like that. He's impressed with Bryson's club head speed, ball flight and ball split distance off the tee. He's impressed with his brainy analysis and self-awareness of his beta and theta brainwaves, toggling between his parasympathetic and sympathetic brainwaves. Phil asked Bryson to talk about this in the middle of the match, and they're going back and forth. Thank God that Sir Charles Barkley was the other announcer and commentator because Charles knows how to cut things in half and he knows exactly what to say at the right time. And he just makes you laugh. It's like nobody thinks about this. 
Now, Phil would basically say that people are doing it. We've been professional athletes. I say, wait, take me out of it. Professional athletes have been getting in the zone for decades, figuring out how to get themselves in a situation where they have absolutely no stress. They're focused on their target and they execute flawlessly. So Phil would suggest that as as we go into the future because of technology, we could learn more about how to control our brainwaves, how to control your nerves when you're coming up to hit the ball. And Charles said, man, I've been doing that. I just breathe, (laughs) which is true. I mean, a lot of what we do to calm ourselves down, get our pulse rate down, get our heart rate down is by doing mindful breathing, right? A count of six in, a count of six out. And so that's kind of what Phil was talking about. But Bryson gets so deep into it when he starts to explain it. You could just see Brooks rolls his eyes. And I think Phil Mickelson is auditioning for his next role in sports. And that's being in the announcing booth. Last week, he joined the Manning brothers on their Monday night football sideshow and came prepared to illustrate his preparation and insightful questioning. Matter of fact, he kind of took over the show when he was there. I think one of the Manning brothers just kind of cut him off and said, let's go to commercial. So before the match, Phil is sitting with Bryson and Brooks, as well as the barstool crew. And then he makes this prediction that Bryson's going to win the match. He's going to go two up by the third hole and stay and never relinquish the lead. Well, that was a mistake. And just as Phil alluded to, halfway through the match, he's talking about Brooks Kepka. And he said, Brooks has a way of harnessing haters and naysayers. He harnesses their comments, and then he takes his game to another level, similar to MJ. Phil even cited an example of when the two of them were playing in the same group at the PGA Championship, how Phil, who usually tries a little gamesmanship, didn't say anything except when when Brooks hit a good shot, he'd say, good shot, Brooks. That is it. He didn't want to give Brooks any ammunition. So it's interesting. So knowing how Brooks rises to the occasion, why would Phil openly predict in front of Brooks and Bryson and an audience of this crew that Bryson would win? I mean, was he trying to set up a self-fulfilling prophecy? Was he trying to plant a seed in Bryson's gray matter to will the match? I mean, is he that much of a fan of Bryson's thought process to make that statement right there in front of Brooks? Or did he place a bet on DraftKings 10K on Brooks? To me, this match between these two very good players revealed one thing. Like every other golf game, Sometimes you bring it and sometimes you don't. Bryson hit drives over 400 yards, but couldn't capitalize on the greens. Brooks was steady and putted lights out. Now, is it me or does Bryson sound like a total dork or nerd when he expounds on his mental process followed by underperformance? He's, it's like he's like Einstein when he makes all those comments and it translates into incredible play and he wins. He's like Urkel when he doesn't. I became a Brooksy fan by the end of Friday night. 
counterpunch, knock him out. Knock him As I mentioned earlier, I had a lot of windshield time driving on these two-lane roads, you know, with ranches and farmland between St. Pete and Stewart, Florida. It's actually a pretty drive. I liked it far better than taking Route 4 and going through Orlando. Anyway, I stumble upon a few of Tom Brady and Jim Gray's weekly podcast called Let's Go. Do any of you remember the Jim Gray-Pete Rose interview back in 2000? It was not an easy listen. Somehow Jim and Tom have created a work of art between the two of them. If you want to get into the head of the goat, it's worth listening to Tom. Tom and Jim do uh, Let's Go every Monday. And so uh, Tom brings his emotion from Sunday into Monday's podcast. If they won, um, I think he's very humble about his win. And if they lose, you could feel the emotion. And the one, one of the uh, podcasts I heard, he just came off a loss. And, uh, you know, he speaks to the fact that he takes full responsibility for the team. He's fully accountable. But at the same time, he suggests that is every, all 11 players on the field thinking as one? Are they all fully prepared and playing to their potential? And obviously, if you're losing, the other team's doing something better than you that Sunday, you know, which can amount to less penalties and less turnovers. Because here's the thing about the players for the most part. These guys were the best high school players, probably the best in their state. They were recruited to play on top level college teams, some the best college teams in the NCAA. Then They make it through the draft, and now they're playing with players who were the best in high school, were the best in college, and now some of them have won Super Bowls. These are the best of the best. And so when you're playing against the best of the best in the world in that sport, there's always the chance that if you're not thinking your best and doing your best, the other guys are going to beat you. During a Thanksgiving holiday, Tom and Jim had Oprah on their show. You could clearly hear the mutual respect and admiration for each other. And I didn't realize that Stedman was a diehard Brady fan. He is. It's powerful to have two positive role models playing off each other. And each one of them asks insightful questions. Like Oprah's talking to Tom and she's like, hey, Tom, describe your Thanksgiving event with your family. Now, I'm thinking, here's a guy, money is not an issue, uh, could do just about anything. This is going to be some elaborate affair. And what you find out is, Tom says, hey, look, I'm still in the middle of a season, which means my head is wrapped around the season. So Thursday morning, I'm practicing. I'm probably watching films and I'm practicing. And then I come home or wherever we are. Giselle, family, and friends make a small dinner. They probably spend two, maybe three hours together, and then he's back at it again. And what he had said is, there'll be a time in the future when I'm not playing football anymore, and there's a good chance we're going to have a much better Thanksgiving. And that would probably be true 
if he doesn't go into the broadcasting booth? You know, and then Tom comes back with a question. Hey, Oprah, what's it like having to listen to producers ask you questions when you have one of those small speaker earpieces in your ear? And Oprah's like, I don't wear them. I don't listen to my producers. He's like, you don't, because most broadcasters do that. Most broadcasters, when you see them, like on Sunday, four or five guys talking about football, they have got these air pieces and producers are each giving them a role, things, talking points. Now, they might go off the page to inflect some of their personal um, experiences, in, but for the most part, producers are sitting there giving these guys something to say. So Oprah's like, I don't listen to producers. She said, I had this situation once where I was interviewing, I think it was Meg Ryan. And the producers are like, you got to ask this question. You got to ask this question. And I think at the time, Meg Ryan was either dating or married to Burt Reynolds, right? And she's like, okay. So they get off this break and she goes, so Meg, is it true that Burt uh, sleeps with his hairpiece on? Bam. Wrong thing to ask. Meg was a little insulted. And then from every point on after that, she acted like a hostile witness. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically when the judge tells the witness they could only answer in yes and no answers. And that's what she did for the rest of the interview. And after that, Oprah said her gut told her not to do it. She did it because that's what the producers wanted her to do. And she was early in her career. And from that point on, she's like, I'm not doing it. And then Jim Gray asked, hey, Oprah, have you ever had the perfect interview? And Oprah's like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what perfection is. I've got a list of questions, but mostly I just want to have some dialogue, some humanity with this person in front of me. And when I'm done, I take the headpiece off. I walk off the set and I start planning my next interview. I mean, she said she has, she's had memorable interviews, like one with Justin Bieber when he was just starting to uh, hit the stage and was world known. And, you know, he was just starting to fuck up left and right. And her advice to him was, you got to find your center. You got to find your values. And if you don't know what those things are, when you hit the celebrity stage that he hits, most everybody falls apart because they're too busy trying to please everybody else and be something that everybody else wants. And every, what we know is everybody wants something different. Yeah, anyway, I thought that was a really good special with the three of them talking to each other. If you have a chance, listen to it. So after listening to that, I then listened to Brett Favre. And listening to Brett Favre after Tom Brady, it's almost like night and day. I mean, Tom is very mindful about all the prep work you have to do and the difficulty it is in making sure everybody's on the same page to win that next game. Nothing is taken for granted, no matter what your record is. He said uh, when he was playing with the Patriots, there was a time when his record in the first 10 games, they're 10 and 0. And then the next six games, they're two and four. And he couldn't put his finger on why it just happens uh, because of what happens with them and what happens with the other teams. And so Brett Favre is talking about, I don't remember what game he was talking about, but obviously an underdog won against a team with a far better record. And he's like, yeah, I'm beside myself. I don't know how they lost. <laughs> it's just just the opposite of what Tom just said. It's like, you know why they lost. But that being said, I still like the good old boy attitude, take on things 
that Brett Favre has. He keeps it simple and just states the obvious. I even stumbled upon a Doug Flutie podcast. I think it was Flutie Flakes or something like that. You know, not a bad listen. This guy is a positive mindset and he didn't win by accident. He believed he could win and he did things that people his size weren't doing. And it was all mindset. So, you know, after hours on the road, listening to Tom Brady, Oprah, I listened to Coach K. And then I even listened to three past episodes of Tales from the First Tee just to figure out how I can improve. Yeah, the eight-hour ride back on Saturday from Vero Beach, Florida to Charleston was void of any sports podcasts. Yeah, instead, we listened to some of Hamilton, some of Taylor Swift, and had some very insightful conversation on the way back. So I get back to my place and I plop down on the couch and watch three NCAA football games. First, the Clemson SC game. I've been living in Charleston now since 2015. That's more than enough time to learn that you have to pick a side. I'm not from here and both my kids went to colleges in Kansas and Ohio. So I have no financial or emotional tie to either school. So if I'm forced to pick, I pick Clemson. I mean, their record since I've been here is 6-0 and in the Palmetto Bowl. Plus, it seems like the character Ted Lasso was inspired by a character like Dabo Sweeney. During the first quarter of the Palmetto Bowl, I truly believed this was Essie's chance to bring the Palmetto Trophy back to Columbia. But somewhere in the second half, it just looked like it wasn't going to be. From my perspective, here's the thing about Rivalry Week. It brings out another level of emotion that starts with the media, which instigates the fans, which elevates the players' cause for effectiveness. The coaches, who are also aware of the impact of the outcome of the game, from the media, the boosters, the students, and every alumni dead or alive— So they have to find a way to keep their 85 players focused on their game plan. For the most part, with some exceptions, not easy to do when there are 80,000 fans in the stands. The kids in these college state rivalries have been playing with and against each other for as much as a decade. Now imagine a high school state championship. If it's a big school, a big high school like Texas high schools, there are 20,000 fans in the stands, and I don't know how many people um, are watching through streaming services or local TV in the high school games. Now expand that to college. Upwards of 100,000 fans in the stands and millions watching on their devices. That is an enormous undertaking for a coach to keep his players focused. I think that these rivalries are a good petri dish or litmus test to highlight and underscore athletes that step up their games under the spotlight. And I would think they have to be talking points, at least to win ties when NFL teams are getting ready for draft day. Who stepped up and who fell apart under pressure? Anyway, Auburn stepped up their game. Alabama found a way to win. 
Clemson did what it do. Michigan put an exclamation point on their season, and Oklahoma State, like Alabama, found a way to win in the fourth quarter. You've been listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.